Welcome to Tales of Resistance. I'm Tony Pacheco. This is Episode 1B, A Woman Called Moses. If you haven't listened to Episode 1A yet, I recommend going back so you can hear the first part of our story. If you listen to this one first, there'll be some spoilers ahead. Seriously, there's a spoiler coming right after I finish this sentence. Okay, when we last left our hero, Araminta Ross had decided to change her name to Harriet Tubman in advance of escaping bondage. Harriet gathered her brothers, Harry and Ben. She had decided that she was going to flee the plantation and wanted her brothers to come with her. No matter what she said, they didn't want to escape. They gave reason after reason. The risks were too high. If they were caught, they'd surely be sold, probably deep in the South, to one of the more cruel plantations as retribution. This situation had come about because Harriet's master, Edward, had recently died and left all that he had to his daughter Eliza. With Bucktown Farm still under massive debts from her father's mismanagement, Eliza was renting out slaves to other plantations to cover the debts, rather than selling them. Many of the slaves expected that some of them would be sold nonetheless. She started by renting slaves to her grandfather, Anthony Thompson. Just as a quick aside, yes, this is the same Anthony Thompson from episode 1A that had owned Harriet's father, and yes, I use the past tense on purpose. Anthony's father's last will and testament had granted Ben, Harriet's father, his freedom after 35 years of labor. To be fair, many slave owners had done this, willed their slaves' freedom after some period of time. But remember, the slaves are people that are treated as though they are property. They have no legal status or standing. They could not challenge the person who inherited them in court. Because of this, many slaves were not set free as their former masters had wished. This group included Harriet Tubman. Anyways, so Harriet was working at Anthony Thompson's Poplar Neck Plantation. And finally, with some persuasion, Harriet was finally able to convince her brothers to break free with her. Harriet, Harry, and Ben escaped on Monday, September 17, 1849. Since they were not regular workers at the Poplar Neck Plantation, their escape went unnoticed for almost two weeks. This two-week head start was priceless. It gave them time to get quite far, and possibly hidden in an underground railroad station by the time the slave catchers started looking for them. Then on October 3rd, 1849, a notice of their escape was published in the Cambridge Democrat. Eliza was offering a $300 reward, $100 a head, to anyone that brought Harriet and her brothers back to Bucktown Farm. Upon seeing the notice, Harry and Ben became nervous. Now, the slave catchers were looking for them. If they were caught, who knows what they might do to them. As long as they were returned alive and good enough condition that they would be able to work again, the slave catchers could claim $300 for their return. Harriet's two brothers no longer wanted to go on. The risk was too high now, and the consequences were finally real. Harriet's two brothers wanted to turn back, now. The whipping they would get when they returned on their own could not be nearly as bad as being beaten severely, then marched back to the plantation and change by the sadistic monsters known as slave catchers, just to get a whipping when they got back anyways. Harriet, Harry, and Ben decided they would turn back. They would return to Bucktown Farm, 
As they came close, Harriet pointed out a clear and safe path back to the plantation for them to follow. As her brothers led the way, she stopped and told them she would not be returning with them. Freedom was all that she wanted, so she would be continuing north on her own. Harriet had already taken so much risk, breaking free and then beginning to return. She was resolved to free herself, and after making sure her brothers were safe returning to the plantation, she continued north. This detour would set Harriet back in time and increase the risk that she would be caught. Now, her two-week head start had disappeared and the slave catchers would be right on her trail. Harriet Tubman traveled at night so that she would not be seen. The slave catchers would be looking primarily by day or by torchlight. So by traveling at night, she could remain hidden more easily. And even if the slave catchers were near, their torches would give away their location. But there was another, far more important reason. The stars. Just as other fugitive slaves, such as Frederick Douglass, she followed the North Star. She would continue north until she was stopped by a white woman. Her name, and almost every other identifying feature about this woman, was lost to history. But it was the way that she approached her that caught Harriet's attention. She spoke to her much differently than most other white people she'd encountered. Like almost everything about this woman, her words are also lost to history. But I imagine her saying something like, There's a station not far from here. You can rest there and continue looking for the drinking gourd tomorrow. These were words that Harriet would recognize. Other people that she knew who were part of the Underground Railroad, would have used them in town. Station, she remembered, was a safe place. The drinking gourd, on the other hand, was instrumental to her escape, so she would never forget what that meant. This woman knew that Harriet was a runaway slave, only because she noticed her following the North Star, using the Big Dipper or drinking gourd to find it. But taking shelter from a stranger was always a risk. There was a price on her head, and anyone that returned her to the plantation stood to gain a large amount of money. Harriet took that risk, and it paid off. The woman sheltered her for the first night and gave her instructions on what to do next. The sad part to me is that this woman, who was a crucial part of Harriet's escape, we know almost nothing about. All we know is that she was a Quaker and a member of the Underground Railroad a network of people that provided safe houses and transportation for fugitive slaves. Harriet's exact escape route is unknown to this day, and we know little to nothing about all the sources of help she received on her way to Pennsylvania. Sadly, this is a tale that will have to be left incomplete. It is believed that she traveled northeast along the Choptank River and through Delaware to Pennsylvania. If this was her path, her journey would have been nearly 90 miles long, and it is unclear how long it took her, especially after the doubling back. With how little we know about her trek, we do have one interesting piece of information straight from Harriet's mouth. Years later, while reflecting on her journey, she said, When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I were the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. 
The line to which she referred was the Mason-Dixon line, a demarcation line for the legality of slavery. North of that line were free states, to the south, the slave states. Heaven, though, is the most telling word in the sentence. Heaven was a word that was used to mean freedom to slaves and Underground Railroad agents alike. She felt like she was in heaven, or felt as though she were free, but knew that unless slavery was abolished, she would always be a fugitive. She would have to constantly look over her shoulder, but as we already knew, that fear was not going to stop Harriet Tubman. Eventually, she made her way all the way to Philadelphia. She began working in hotels, then clubhouses, and finally in Cape May. As she had done before, she was frugal and began saving money. She knew exactly why she was saving this money up. She was going to break her family out of bondage. When asked later about why she went back to the South after escaping, and while still a wanted fugitive, she said, I had crossed the line. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in Maryland, because my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and friends were all there. But I was free, and they should be free. Harriet went to work. She used the connections that she had made while escaping to break her own family and friends free. But those were not the only ones that she led to freedom. We do not know exactly how Harriet Tubman escaped all alone years prior, but we do have accounts from fugitive slaves as to how Harriet Tubman helped them escape slavery when she was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. As a slave in the South, one may hear rumors that Moses was coming. For days, the sound of swing low, sweet chariot would hang heavy in the air. As many of us are taught in school, the members of the Underground Railroad use Christian imagery to create code words and send secret messages. In this case, swing low means to head to the south. Sweet Chariot is talking about the Underground Railroad. Coming forth to carry me home, which, as you may have already figured out, means to bring me to freedom. Swing low was the notification that Moses was coming. Moses then sends a messenger. He informs the slaves that if they are to escape, that they should leave on Saturday. Since Sunday is their off day, a day that was given to them to worship, it would give them a two-day head start until their master would notice they were missing. The slaves would leave before their disappearance is ever broadcast in the papers, giving them a two-day head start on the slave patrols as well. On Saturday, the slaves met at a location that was given by Moses' messenger. And that is where the fugitive slaves get their first glimpse of Moses. She was legendary amongst the slaves. They had heard tales of her, which almost assuredly had contained some exaggerations. But there stood a five-foot-tall Harriet Tubman, singing. The slaves did not let her small frame deceive them, though, for it was evident that her stature far exceeded her height. Harriet had begun being called Moses by the abolitionist Thomas Garrett, We'll meet him a little more later. He was impressed by Harriet's ability to take large groups of slaves on the long journey to freedom, 
and how she was able to securely deliver them from bondage. Moses was a fitting name for that description, and it stuck. By the time this expedition left, most slaves would know her by the name Moses, and not Harriet Tubman or even Araminta Ross. It was spring when they had escaped, which is when the Underground Railroad primarily left the South. The nights were still long enough to make good progress while traveling. The darkness of the long nights was also used to avoid being seen by the fugitive slave patrols. At the same time, the days were getting longer and warmer, giving adequate time to rest while the weather was much more temperate. This gave the slaves not only the cover of night and a chance to get rest by day, but it also gave them their best shot at freedom. On the second night, the slaves would arrive at the first station. This was the house of Sam Green. Sam was not a stranger to resistance. He had served a 10-year prison term for simply owning the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Challenging unjust laws is what Sam did, and running a station on the Underground Railroad was just another way in which he did so. When Harriet and the slaves arrived at Sam's home, they were quickly hurried into a secret passage to keep them safe. Slave catchers would often stop by homes of those suspected to help fugitive slaves, putting the freedom of Harriet, the escaped slaves, and Sam Green at risk. This secret passage would keep all of them safe, and there they would stay for several days, waiting out any nearby fugitive slave patrols. When it seemed safe to travel again, Sam would take one of the male slaves and dress him as a middle-class African-American freedman. There was a man there to drive the wagon, and the disguised slave would be his front seat passenger. The rest of the slaves were placed in the bed of the wagon and then covered with hay and produce. This is what the conductors and station masters called hauling a load of potatoes. The two men would act as though they're taking the produce to market to sell. But somewhere along the way, deep in the forest, the wagon would stop, unload the slaves, and leave them with Harriet to find their way north. As we discussed earlier, they would travel by night, but for all the reasons, there's one reason that's more important than all others, the visibility of the North Star. In an age long before smartphones and GPS, this is by far the easiest way to navigate north. They would follow the North Star to freedom, this was simple when the nights were clear with an unobstructed view of the stars. But this is spring, and April showers would regularly bring clouds that would obscure the North Star from view. When this first happened, the slaves began to panic. They had to wait out the clouds in order to continue traveling in the right direction, so they thought. But they had one of the most experienced and resourceful conductors leading them and the clouds would not be stopping Harriet from freeing these slaves. Harriet would tell them to look for moss. Here, in the Appalachian Mountains in their foothills, moss would only grow on the north side of trees. This gave them an ever-present arrow pointing north, leading them to freedom. As they came closer to the Mason-Dixon line, they hear movements near them. Leaves crackle, and every one of their own steps seem louder than the previous one. The slaves are afraid, but somehow they find the courage to keep going. Dogs bark in the distance. Now they know a fugitive slave patrol is near. Panicked, the slaves grow fearful of being caught, beaten, 
then brought back to the plantation for further whippings. Calmly and quietly, they hear a song break through in a female voice. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. Oh, God's gonna trouble the water. Harriet Tubman had begun singing instructions to them. Carefully, following Harriet's lead, they inch into the river they were following, trying not to make it splash too much, to draw any more attention to their location. They are wet and cold, but this helps to cover their scent from the dogs. After over an hour of waiting in the water, the barks die down and a sense of relief falls over everyone. They must have lost our scent, they think. Their feet are tired from walking for so many miles. As they leave the river, they begin to notice strings of red coloring dyeing the water. After wading among the sharp rocks, their feet had begun to bleed. They still had much further to go, but after a few miles, they arrive at a large city called Wilmington. Hungry and weak, the slaves are met by a man named Thomas Garrett. Mr. Garrett is a famous abolitionist who shelters slaves who come his way and he was the one that gave Harriet Tubman the nickname of Moses. Mr. Garrett was so impressed with Harriet that not only did he give her a nickname, but also funded her trips down south. Thomas then sends the group to the Friends Meeting House. For those of you that don't know, the Friends Meeting House is what the Quakers call their meeting facilities. It's not quite a church, per se, but the nearest comparison is a church house. There... At the friend's meeting house, the escaped slaves get hurried into the cellar to hide. The Quakers then give food, fresh water, and shelter, ensuring in every way they can that the fugitive slaves will not be caught. After a few days, they bring them new shoes to help them along their still quite long journey. This journey would be much longer than the one Harriet took. Since she escaped, there were new laws put in place, namely the Fugitive Slave Law. This allowed escaped slaves to be returned to their masters, even if they had made it to the north. So this time, just crossing the Mason-Dixon line was not enough to grant their freedom. They had to make it all the way to Canada. After their few days in Wilmington, the former slaves set off to Philadelphia. As they crossed the Mason-Dixon line, they're met by William Still, who works for the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. He's an African-American man. He was born free, and unlike the escaped slaves, he knows how to read and write. He asks them questions about their escape, documenting each step of their path. It's thanks to Mr. William Still that I can tell this tale today. He then sends the former slaves to a station where they can rest. Even though they are in a free state, they are still owned by their master, and the law permits any escaped slave to be captured. Because of this, Mr. Still doesn't only document their escape, but he provides the slaves with new identifying documents, then sends the former slaves north towards Dorchester, New York. In order to get there, they must trek almost 250 miles through the Appalachian Mountains. After steep terrain, long treks during the night, and never enough sleep during the day, they finally arrive in Dorchester. 
There, the group splits, and half of them meet with famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass to stay in his home. The other half of the group stays in the station owned by suffragette Susan B. Anthony. These are the last Underground Railroad stations before reaching Canada. By this point, winter is approaching. They give the former slaves warm clothes, blankets, and thick boots to prepare them for the harsh Canadian winter. Canada is just across Lake Erie. All that needs to happen is for the former slaves to take the ferry across, and they will be free. Over her life, Harriet Tubman would make this trek 19 more times, and in doing so, she freed 300 slaves. The 1850s brought immense tension across the country. Calls for the abolition of slavery intensified, eventually resulting in the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. By June of 1861, just three months after Lincoln was inaugurated, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee had seceded and created the Confederate States of America. By that time, Harriet Tubman was recruited as a volunteer, as part of the Massachusetts Troop led by General Benjamin Butler. She was merely a volunteer since African Americans could not be enlisted into the military or paid for their service. Because of this, she was the only African American among the all-white troop. She worked as a nurse and a cook while stationed at Fort Monroe in Virginia. Then in 1962, Harriet traveled to South Carolina, where she joined Dr. Henry K. Durand, the director of the Freedmen's Hospital at Port Royal. While she was there, she used her knowledge of local roots to help heal many, with her results becoming legendary among the Union soldiers. Then, in January of 1863, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This not only freed all slaves in Confederate states, but finally allowed African Americans to enlist in the U.S. Army for pay. And that was all the permission that Harriet Tubman needed. It didn't take long before she became a Union spy, tasked with creating escape routes for the former slaves. Her previous connection as a conductor on the Underground Railroad served well in this role, allowing her to gain a great deal of intelligence on Confederate troop actions and locations. The trust she had built over decades with the slaves in the South would be her secret weapon. Then on June 2, 1863, Harriet Tubman, under the command of Union Colonel James Montgomery, led 150 black Union soldiers on the Combahee River raid. This act would make her the first woman in U.S. history to lead a military mission. Through her contacts, she was able to find groups of slaves that were willing to give up the locations of Confederate torpedoes hidden in the river in exchange for their freedom. Torpedoes at this time were not shot from submarines, but were explosives that were weighted to the bottom of rivers so they would strike the bottom of ships that were navigating it. After finding the location of all explosives, she loaded 150 former slaves onto two gunboats, the Harriet A. Weed and the John Adams, and navigated the bomb-infested river. I just want you to picture this scene, the two converted steamers chugging down the river, their big side paddle wheels spinning slowly. On the orders of Harriet Tubman, they were able to avoid all explosives sunk in the river. Steam whistles signal, then at the front of the Adams, it is Moses, back in the south again, singing as loud as she can.
from all around, hundreds hear Harriet Tubman's call, and as she instructed them, simultaneously they run for the boats. There are slaves running in every direction. The overseers are awakened and quickly try to round them up, but they are wildly outnumbered. In this moment of chaos, the boats dock, and all 150 soldiers exit the boats. They run up the banks, all of them being former slaves. They see the echoes of their previous life in the plantations in front of them. A large group of soldiers break off. They begin destroying roads and bridges. Another group takes aim at town, destroying the businesses needed to allow the plantations to continue to function. The remaining set the plantations on fire, focusing on and completely destroying the largest ones. As the 150 soldiers flee, they begin rounding up the slaves that broke free. Even though 150 soldiers came on the steamboats, they could easily transport 500, maybe more. By the end, Harriet Tubman didn't lose a single soldier, and she emerged with her two steamboats carrying at least 727 former slaves, in addition to the 150 she brought with her. This put the total number of slaves directly freed by Harriet Tubman to over a thousand, and the Combahee River Raid still stands as the largest liberation of slaves in American history. So, on to our resistance of the week. It started with 33 people. Just 33 people wanted their congressional representative to hold a town hall meeting. They piled into their congressman's local office on a Friday and asked his staff to please schedule one. The staff, although very nice and kind to the resistors, informed them that that would not be happening. So the next Friday came. This time more than 60 people showed up, simply asking to have the chance to exercise their First Amendment rights and petition their representative during a town hall. Once again, the staff, at the congressman's direction, refused. The next Friday came around, and I don't know if any of you have been to your representative's local office, but generally, they're not very large. They have room for a few staff, they might have a conference room and a couple offices, and not much else. But the third Friday came, and 115 people piled into the office and down the hallway outside his office. All they wanted was for the congressman to schedule a town hall. When their request was refused once again, they decided to show up again the next week. This time, over 400 people piled into the office, hallway, and outside the office building. They stood out in below freezing temperatures to ask New Jersey 11th's congressional representative, Rodney Freelinghausen, to have a town hall. When they were once again rebuffed, the resistors had a decision to make. If after four weeks and hundreds of people showing up to his offices on Friday, when they were not asking for his resignation, or even as little for him to vote a specific way on a bill. No, they were asking just to hear from their congressional representative in a forum that they would be allowed to ask questions, and each time they had been turned down. It seemed unlikely that their rep would ever schedule a town hall, so do they stop or do they try again? Well, try again they did. They called themselves the New Jersey 11th for change, and they decided that they'll be showing up to their house rep's office every Friday, calling it Fridays with Freelinghausen, until he scheduled a town hall. They got petitions signed by thousands of his constituents calling for a town hall meeting. They baked cakes and sung carols, sent him valentines, and decorated his Christmas tree with stickers. They even held town halls in his stead, 
using a cardboard cutout of Rep Freelinghausen as his placeholder. They kept it up and showed up to his offices every Friday for a year. And just this past week, they got their reward. No, Rep Freelinghausen did not schedule a town hall. But he did announce that he would not be seeking re-election. Now this group may get a town hall in the future, but most importantly, they get the chance to elect a candidate that will listen to their constituents without having to run against someone with an incumbency advantage. And this kind of goes in perfectly to our call to action this week. Over the last two weeks, I've had many people say to me that your action last week was great, it made me want to register to vote, but I have no idea who I should vote for in the primaries. So this episode's call to action is to research what's going to be on the ballot. First, voting laws vary in every state, so that makes it really hard to make a guide that works nationwide. For primaries, this gets even more complicated. For example, in the primaries, some states will let you vote for any candidate. Others, you can only vote for candidates from the party you're registered to. Because of this, there'll be many links for you to follow up on. So I'm going to put together a ballot research guide on talesofresistance.com so you don't have to write all of it down. And I'm sure some of you are driving, which is when I listen to podcasts. So I want you to live. So skip the writing. Just see the ballot research guide on talesofresistance.com. With all that out of the way, I'm going to make this as simple as possible. First, you need to know who's running and what things are on the ballot. To do that, you need to go to ballotpedia.org slash sample underscore ballot underscore lookup. Put in your address and click continue. Then go to the 2018 primary election and hit continue again. Ballotpedia will give you a list of everything and everyone that's going to be on your ballot. These are the people that we will be researching. So there are three sites that I like to use to research candidates. There are OpenSecrets.org, OnTheIssues.org, and VoteSmart.org. So first, visit OpenSecrets. There, you can see who's funding your candidate's campaign. It breaks down their donations and expenditures in several ways. This is a good way to get an idea of how a candidate is going to vote on specific issues, since you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Remember that you're electing a representative. If they're funded by people that disagree with you on a topic that's important, they will likely not vote in the way you want on that issue. Next, visit On the Issues. Here, you can see candidates' quotes on specific topics. This is useful since a politician's public face is often going to lead their votes. They will indicate their positions publicly through their website, campaign materials, and in stump speeches before ever having a decision to make. Just kind of a fun fact here. A stump speech is a campaign speech that's mostly unchanged for every location a politician speaks in. Prior to television and the radio, this took place in the town square. Although the legend goes that not every town a candidate spoke in could afford a, quote, proper town square. So often, this speech was given atop a stump in town. By reviewing public statements over time about specific topics, you can at least see if the candidate is speaking to the issues you care about. If they're not, they will likely not bring up those issues while in office. Finally, visit VoteSmart. They have some repeated information from the previous two sites, they also have detailed information on candidates' bios, votes, positions, speeches, funding, plus their rating and endorsements by different political interest groups. They also have an interesting way to present this information for specific issues. It's called Political Galaxy. 
This lets you first search by candidate, and then it has you select an issue. At this point, it presents you all the information regarding the specific candidate on that issue alone. This is a great way to see if a candidate you're interested in really supports the issues you care about. I know I just gave you a ton of information about candidates to digest. I know it can be overwhelming. So when I need to know about a candidate in a hurry, there's three things I look at. First, where's their funding coming from? For that, I use Open Secrets. Second, what are their public positions? For that, I use On the Issues. And finally, what is their voting record? But I don't want to have to compile their voting record and rate it. So I go over to their ratings page on VoteSmart and look at what groups support them. These large national groups have a vested interest in following voting records and their ratings. When viewed alongside other groups' ratings, this can give us a good idea of how someone has voted on issues in the past. All this information will help you figure out who will be the best person to vote for in the primary. And this can be easily repeated for every election. So just grab the guide off talesofresistance.com and follow the instructions. Thank you for listening. For more information about the podcast, please go to our website, talesofresistance.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, at Resistance Tales. Podcast created and produced by Tony Pacheco and Ginger Eads. Theme music is by Asura. And our call to action music is by Jason Shaw. For more information on our musical selections, please see our website. Also, big shout out to the Plantation Singers, who let me use their recording of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. You can find more information about them on plantationsingers.com or on facebook.com slash plantationsingers. And another big shout out to my cat, which decided to interrupt my recording of the intro and outro today. <laughs>